tucked in a sailing bag alongside our books, iPad, flip-flops, and Scrabble game was a dot matrix printout of a PDF file of a meticulously transcribed journal written by my great-great-grandmother, which had come to my inbox almost a century after it was written. The story of a life in Maine. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. Nothing's gonna break my fall. There's nothing in the protocol. It's like swimming up a waterfall or taking away the ground. Welcome to Daring to Tell. I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone, and you may be wondering what's going on. Where is Michelle? Well, she is our guest today. She is going to share her beautiful essay, and I get to ask her questions. I am her writing coach, but also her friend, and she is my podcast producer. Uh, she has hosted me on Daring to Tell, so I couldn't be happier to get to be in the host role today and get to hear from you, Michelle. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Nadine. What a pleasure it is to join you today. It's all topsy-turvy. It's, it's like, okay, today I'll do this and you do that. We're switching everything around. <laughs> I love it. I love it because today I get to ask you the questions that really I love asking every writer. So I love that I get to get some inside scoop and that the dear listeners get to mm -hmm. also hear more about your process. They get to hear more about your writing. So that's actually where I wanted to start today is about your process. Yes. So I want to know how and when you write. Do you have a favorite spot? Tell us more about this. I do. I have a favorite spot. It is the couch in our like living room, family room. And I am an early morning writer. Since I stopped working my quote unquote day job, my full-time work, I used to get up really, really early. And now my... <laughs> My biology does not <laughs> let me sleep in anymore, but it's fine. And it works out well because I find myself sort of the most in a zone when I first wake up in the morning and I love sitting down, opening up my laptop, have the coffee next to me. And I just allow myself to get into whatever is next on my story. I, I will say like, cause I'm working on a memoir and I send out a newsletter every week. And so for both of those things, I, I sort of want to know where I'm going before I sit down. And it's taken me a while, I think, to figure out that that happens when I'm out in the world doing things and not when I sit down in front of my computer. So maybe I've left mm -hmm. my story off or my newscast at a place where I know we had, you know, some plumbing fiasco and we <laughs> kind of fill everybody in on what happened with that. 
but often, I mean, I spend most of my week sort of going, oh, is this a newsletter moment? Or is this the next thing I want to do? And I, and I also write based off of journals that I keep. So I am a pretty, not, not religious, not like horribly disciplined journaler, but I try to just like keep a journal of my thoughts of the more significant things going on in my life, the things I don't share elsewhere. And that sort of acts as my guidepost when I say, all right, well, what was going on then? And then it helps me think about what I want to say. Cause I I've said this another, um, I think I've said this throughout the podcast at some point, I find myself to be a really slow thinker. And mm. so I think writing helps me process the things yeah. that take me a while to, to think through. So, mm. yeah. You're not alone there because I think a lot of writers are what we would call quote unquote, slow processors. Mm. Uh, but I do find advantage to that because we write to figure out what we're thinking or feeling or what the deeper meaning is. And so even though it might take more time to do that, we also can find deeper meaning than say most others, because we are taking the time. Right. So you're using, it sounds like your journals as a sort of touch point to go, how was I feeling during that time to remind yourself, essentially, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah. And that's actually another good point. Cause I have a horrible memory. I feel like I don't remember anything. So that's the other reason why I take almost fastidious notes. I actually have a lot of different kinds of notebooks. Like I have a notebook for my daily activities will uh, we'll label it that way. <laughs> and then I have my journal for my thoughts and I have a calendar. And so all these different things, I can sort of go back and piece together, oh, this was happening then, or that was when this other thing happened to me. Because otherwise I go, oh, I totally forgot this other thing happened to me. And so that's mm. been really helpful to put it all back into context and be able to kind of make those slow assessments or realize what the longer term changes are that we go through. Cause it's hard to know day to day, like how am I different than yesterday than the day before? But mm, I found, yeah, mm -hmm. that like thinking we're always the same is the myth. Mm. And it's, surprising to me that you say you have a bad memory because your writing would prove otherwise, <laughs> but maybe it is owed to those journal entries. And so the change that you're talking about, that growth that we don't see day to day, but that upon looking back at the journals, we can understand. I think that's what makes writing really strong when we can see the character's growth from mm -hmm. then until now. And you showcase that in your writing and you certainly do that in your memoir. So how is it different for you when you're writing, you're working on your memoir versus working on your newsletter versus a standalone piece? What, what are the differences in your process? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes, sometimes there's just the story that's right in front of me that has to come out. Um, I talked with Bill Kenauer, another writer, and with some of the other writers that I've spoken with, I hear so frequently. Actually, I was also listening to a masterclass recently, which is a 
fabulous gift my former colleagues gave me um, when I left work of Judy Bloom, who I was a huge Judy Bloom fan when I was a kid. And they both say how the writing or the characters have a life of their own. And it's like this character just decided to do this thing, which I, not as a fiction writer, never quite grasped that. It's like, well, this is you. You're the one writing it. Mm -hmm. But I do understand it in my nonfiction writing that I might sit down to write a chapter about this thing that happened and then it takes off in this whole other direction. I go, all right, well, I guess this is what I had to say today. So each one of those things, I think often it comes from something that's happened to me that has been a little touchstone that I go, oh, I have to, I have to write this down. I have to make it be something. Um, and it can be a really small thing and suddenly it turns into 3,000 plus words as you frequently get to see on the mm -hmm. other end when it comes to you. Yeah, Pam Houston calls them glimmers, collecting glimmers, these yeah. little life moments. Um, and I think that what I'm hearing from you though too is you trust your gut <laughs> on when you know that something is story worthy. It's something small, but you know that it's relevant. You might not know what it'll become, but you trust that it is something. Yeah. Uh, and I think that when writers do that, when they trust what takes their attention, that is key. That is key. And so with this piece that you're going to be reading today, yes. what's the inspiration behind it? So that is actually exactly one of these little moments that I had no idea would that would explode into 3000 plus words. There's a moment you will hear about at the very beginning. So Phil, my husband and I moved this past summer. This is all going to be in the essay. And I overheard these two bicyclists outside my window who were riding by our house. And they made this comment. I won't like spoil it at this moment. And from that small little overhearing that thing that they said came this whole explosion of like, I didn't realize I was feeling all these things about moving, about, it, it was a huge transition in our lives, leaving work, leaving Boston, moving from the city to the country. I mean, it was pretty much transition on every level. So this one little thing put a spotlight on a bit of um, an inconsistency that I felt I could somehow draw these threads and pull together. I don't know if that mm. makes sense, but Total sense. we'll see. Um, we'll see what, what the listener thinks when, uh, yeah. when we get there. So I love that because you took this one overheard line of dialogue and you just ran with it. And when you were able to explore it, it led, as the listener will hear soon, it led to really a discovery of a lot of deeper themes. So I am always urging writers and myself to not discount those little moments, mm. the overheard bit of dialogue or somewhere. If it, if it, gathers your attention for some reason. It's important. So I'm so glad that you followed the thread here. Yeah. So without further ado, I would love to have you read this piece so that sure. the listener can actually hear it. 
Absolutely. I am thrilled to. Um, okay. So, yes. So here is my essay. It is called Losing Grace, Finding Home. On a Tuesday morning in early September, I sat next to an open window in my new home office. Not a COVID-inflicted working-from-home setup, but a getting-settled-into-a-new-creative-space-for-myself nest. It was barely eight weeks after my husband, Phil, and I moved away from Boston, away from lifelong careers in radio, sold our condo in the city, and began settling into this new-to-us old farmhouse in Maine. The cool morning air was beginning to warm and sounds of nature were only infrequently interrupted by the whoosh of an occasional car going by, something so rare it seemed worthy of attention each time. Until I heard some voices. I glanced down from my second floor perch through the branches of the maple tree in our front yard to see two bicyclists decked out in their be sure to see me gear I assumed they were locals only because I was still feeling so new. Maybe a few of the new neighbors we'd been starting to meet, but pretty quickly I discovered, no, they were from away. Yup, she's right here with me, he said loudly into his cell phone. We're in rural Maine, bum fuck nowhere. Excuse me? I almost shouted this out the window as I recoiled in my comfy new writing chair. Yes, we loved that our little country road can make you feel like you're miles from civilization, but well, this was hardly bumfuck nowhere. When we found this house, we'd been delighted at how close it was to so much. Grocery stores and restaurants, antique shops and bookstores, fish markets and good hospitals and the rocky coastline. Heck, we felt closer to way more stuff we loved here than back in the place that called itself the hub. Not even close to qualifying for this individual's crass accusation. Could this little incident have been my initiation to being a Mainer? Secretly, I hoped so. What I really wanted was to belong. When Phil and I began thinking about moving to Maine, we knew we'd be going to a place where by some definitions, we'd always be from away. We were people from Massachusetts, technically tourists who'd begun spending a week each summer at a homey cottage on the rocky coast overlooking Sheepscut Bay. The cottage was at the far edge of a heavenly little curve of sandy beach, which revealed itself only in the hours surrounding low tide. We spent the other 51 weeks of the year counting down to when we'd come back. In August of 2019, we had decadently doubled the length of our stay, and that vacation serendipitously coincided with the closing on this farmhouse with a big old barn. Phil would be retiring, and we were looking for more space for all the instruments he'd begun amassing. We wanted to be able to play music and invite others to play, He's also a painter, which takes up a lot of space. The first time I wandered through the maze of rooms, I started seeing all the things on our wish list. An old house built in 1820, but solid, modernized, well cared for. 
post and beam structure, an exposed brick chimney, along with the random step up or down in odd places where the original house had been expanded. Best of all, that huge barn that held scads of potential, as well as powder post beetles and bats in the belfry, but it called out to both of us as the right spot for us to spread out and create in. In our early weeks, as we began meeting people, new neighbors when I was on my morning jog or at the town hall or places where we'd visit in establishing our new residency, I kept getting asked the friendly but loaded question, why Maine? Do you have family here? The answer wasn't quick or easy as I stood in front of these friendly strangers in my new home, wearing a mask, socially distanced. It inhabits so many moments and coincidences and experiences of the past few years. So in order to answer that, I'm going to have to back up a little. You see, I guess I've wanted to find a place where I felt I belong. I grew up in a small central Massachusetts town on the Connecticut border. My parents grew up in a different small central Massachusetts town on the New Hampshire border. Massachusetts seemed to be the place no one on either side of my family had ever really strayed from until one day when my mother shared a newly discovered piece of her family history with me. After the death of an aunt, a cousin shared a document that was found, an autobiography written by my great-great-grandmother, Adeline Wood Sparrow French. That had been in July of 2017, when Phil and I only had a few weeks to go until our vacation at the Heavenly Cottage on the coast. And so tucked in a sailing bag alongside our books, iPad, flip-flops, and Scrabble game was a dot matrix printout of a PDF file of a meticulously transcribed journal written by my great-great-grandmother, which had come to my inbox almost a century after it was written, the story of a life in Maine. I intently absorbed her words as I sat on the deck, the unending inhale and exhale of the ocean's waves, our only soundtrack. Addie was born in 1856 in Hartford, Maine, where her father tended a large farm. She began her story nostalgically with memories of a happy childhood and then life's first intervention. Her family decided to sell the farm and relocate to Virginia for the sake of her father's health. This was a decade after the Civil War. Within a few months, he recovered from the unnamed illness. So they decided to return to the place that they knew, back to Hartford, Maine, but now to a different, smaller farm, one without all the modern conveniences, as Addie described it, as the one they'd had to sell to move south. She described both loves and hardship with a voice as if I were sitting there at her knee. Addie was bereft when her older brother died of pneumonia. He was 21 and she was 18. Then her father died just two months later. She remained with her mother and two younger siblings to continue on, a smaller, grief-stricken family from whom they'd once been. Addie tried teaching school for a while, which didn't turn out so well. She found more promise in sewing and dressmaking, 
and eventually took on a challenge to become the best buttonhole maker she could be, as her mother apparently was. Eventually, she met Milton French from the neighboring town of Turner. They married and moved a few times to places Milton could find work, including Connecticut and Boston briefly. I later found the street with the same name where she said they'd lived, now a very short street with only industrial buildings. If it was the same place, it had totally changed. Milton lost those jobs and Addie mentioned being homesick during a hot June in Boston. They returned to Auburn for a visit. And while there, Milton found work as a messenger with the Merchant Exchange Company in Lewiston, where Addie became pregnant with her first child. Later, they purchased a lot in neighboring Auburn and built a family home where they raised three daughters. The youngest, named Grace, married a main man as her mother had done. His name was Harry Vickery. They moved to Lynn, Massachusetts, where my maternal grandfather was born. Here's where the story gets hard. I never liked that grandfather all that much. He was patriarchal and imposing, basically a bully. At about six foot two, he was physically intimidating. He didn't like my dad much, and when we'd visit on Sunday afternoons, he'd greet us with a booming accusation. Whose hunk of junk is that at the end of my driveway? At big family dinners, he'd play tricks on anyone who left the table momentarily, steal your fork if you got up to go to the bathroom, then ask, where's your pie check? Does everyone have their pie check? You can't have pie if you don't have your pie check. The pie check was your fork that he had stolen. This was hardly tragic. Maybe a different grandchild would have thought this great fun, but to me, it revealed an undercurrent of mean-spiritedness that made my little girl self want to shrink, to hide. I know my experiences of him were a milder and more tempered version of his younger self. My mom spoke of him being a stern disciplinarian in her childhood. My guess is that's a generous interpretation. When she and her siblings would speak about the changes they saw in their dad through the years, the line they'd always use was, he's mellowed. It took me years to articulate the thought, I never felt as if I belonged. As adults, my mom, her siblings, and their parents developed a ritual of coming up to Weldmain twice per summer, perhaps to reinforce the happiness of their youth more than the difficulties. They'd open a lakeside cabin of a close friend of my grandfather's every Memorial Day and close it again every Labor Day. The trade being, they got to spend those weekends bookending the summer at a camp on a lake in Maine for free. The neighbor got the free labor. I always thought that this neighbor was my grandfather's link to Maine, but this wasn't the case. It turned out to be family. I knew there were some great aunts somewhere along the line that my grandfather would visit when they all came up to Maine. Those relatives were so remote, so distant, I never felt connected to them at all or even grasped how they were related to me. And I was never interested in those camp setup or breakdown weekends in spite of my mom's persistent invitations to join them. While I felt genuine connections with my grandmother and aunt on my mom's side of the family, I never did with any of the men. And I knew this somehow started with a tone set by my grandfather. Besides, I was much more like my own dad who had no use for camp either. 
Camp meant bugs and outhouses and cold mornings without a shower to warm up, sleeping in a sleeping bag on a cot. My mom and her siblings would get up before dawn, paddle their kayaks out to the center of the lake and watch the sunrise together. That sounded nice, but to get up in the cold pre-dawn hours, stumble down a path to a tippy boat, paddle through darkness, those were logistics I just couldn't fathom. But this discovery of Addie's story, along with my newly treasured vacation time in Maine on my own terms, it tugged at something inside of me that I'd not really felt or at least not given much thought to before. I mean, I'd always loved other times I'd spent in Maine. I spent a week at the Maine Media Workshop for a writing class in Rockport. I'd been north on Route 1 enough times to recall the left turn by the Brunswick Diner just before passing the old railroad bridge that crosses the Androscoggin River, signaling Maine's mid-coast was about to begin. And after Phil and I began coming to that vacation cottage, we'd take Saturday road trips just up as far as the Kittery Trading Post. As soon as we crossed the Piscataqua River Bridge on I-95, there was something about the trees that were prouder, straighter, taller than the ones in Massachusetts or New Hampshire. We'd inhale the white pines, even though it was only from the parking lot where I envied all the cars and big pickup trucks for their chickadee and pinecone Maine license plates. There's something magical about Maine. And I felt it whenever I headed north. Once I unpacked and continued reading Addie's autobiography on vacation in 2017, we were perfectly poised to do a little active research. We drove to Hartford with nothing more than the town office as our beacon. We were greeted by Becky, who helpfully gave us a map of the cemeteries in town, including the Sparrow Family Cemetery. Well, that was Addie's maiden name. It began an amazing journey through time. We found gravestones for both Addie's parents and her older brother. His dates indeed confirmed the narrative of her story, but Addie was not there. Becky also pointed us to a sort of local town historian in Hartford too, a woman named Lorraine. She lived just about a mile up the road, Becky said. You'll probably find her in her barn. And we did. Lorraine was a tiny woman who wore a yellow cotton sweater on that warm summer day and wraparound goggles that protected her from the flies that were everywhere. It was a small working barn and she was tending to her cow and its calf. I awkwardly tried to introduce myself, explain my quest as I gestured to my printout introducing her to Addie. She immediately latched on to the adventure. Let's go somewhere we can talk. She helped me to discover more about the Sparrow family's time in Hartford. She later dug up pictures of many documents and took us to some of the places that could have been their original farmstead. She led us to rows of maple trees down an old dirt road that looked old enough to be the very ones Addie had described her father planting in her childhood. Trees that she returned to visit herself late in her life. Lorraine and I have become great friends. Phil and I then continued on to Auburn and found the house that Addie and Milton had built together on Denison Street in Auburn in 1893, still standing. 
I was consumed by every detail in Addie's story. I truly felt as though she were speaking to me personally through time, pieces of her DNA bolting to life in my cells. But as I read on, there was one particular event I was anxiously awaiting to hear about, Grace's death. I had always been aware of a bare fact. Great Grandma Grace died early of cancer. What kind of cancer? I'd ply my mother with questions who had only conjecture. I don't know, maybe breast cancer? Addie indeed had more to share. 1932 was a happy year when Addie and Milton celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. She wrote about a lovely party with remembrances back to their early wedded days. But two years later, she had a new entry with a terrible turn. Grace had had a very serious operation requiring a great deal of recuperative time. Although the operation was deemed successful, Addie stated that Grace came home to us in order to get a rest from the responsibilities of caring for her three young children and her home with Harry in Lynn, Massachusetts. Addie reported that Grace had responded well to the recuperative time with her, but relapsed when she returned to daily activities with her family. She came back for a second convalescence where Grace seemed, quote, far worse. Her symptoms included a cough, and pain in her back, leg, and hip. After returning again to Lynn, she continued to decline. She left her family yet again to stay with one of her sisters, but still continued to worsen. This was when a second doctor took chest x-rays and saw that the cancer they thought they had gotten had spread. A second operation only weakened her already frail condition. Grace died on April 19th of 1934. She was 46 years old. Addie eloquently wrote, and so one night after taking her sleeping potion, she just slept out this life into the great unknown. Grace and Harry's children, aged 14, 11, and seven, awoke to discover their mother had died in the night. No goodbyes just gone. That middle child was my grandfather. Addie continued to puzzle over what had happened. The doctor had advised they not tell Grace of this dire state she was in or tell her children. But surely Harry would have known, wouldn't he have? Was this customary to tell such a prognosis to a husband but not his wife, the patient herself? Obviously, Addie, too, was unable to share this burden of knowledge with her ailing daughter. She continued with the words, It is a great grief to me that I could not see her or even write her about herself and her condition. I feel it is everyone's right to know the truth when they are about to pass from this life. I cannot decide in my own mind whether she did know the truth or not and she'll never know now. Was this context the missing link that I'd been grappling to find? At least a more fleshed out picture of the past? An explanation for what I'd experienced as my grandfather's abstract harshness? Grace's death left 
a huge void in its wake, a black hole between generations, a severing of connections. But now, from across that void, a wormhole opened up to me. Addie's voice took this stark fact I'd always known. My great-grandma Grace died young, of cancer perhaps, and draped context, details, and emotion around it. Emotions that for the rest of my grandfather's life were seemingly too painful for him to ever confront. As early as nine, his mother went away for long stretches of time. He surely did not know why. It must have felt like forever. What was he told about her absences? She was certainly impaired from caring for them in the way she wanted. And then her complete and final disappearance altogether. What does this do to a young boy with a big brother and a little sister who must continue without his mother? Could this be what turned him into the brutish character that I knew? He died in 2013. I made no effort to see him when I knew he was dying. It was my choice and I don't regret this. But still, like Addie, I shall never know now. I had hated that my only relative, who was my connection to this place that I loved, this place that spoke to my soul, was somebody I didn't even like. But now I have Addie. Addie connects me back to Maine. She also shed perspective, answering questions for me that no one else had or could or would. Through all the time I knew my grandfather, he never spoke of her. I asked my mom about this too, and she never recalled him ever mentioning her either. Addie died in 1941. She outlived Grace by seven years, seven influential years in a boy's life. My grandfather was 18 when Addie died. In their visits to Maine, surely he would have seen his maternal grandmother remembered something about her? Or was it too painful for Harry to remain connected to his dead wife's family? Harry remarried, but not until 1949, after all his children had grown. My grandfather loved returning to the place where both his parents were born and raised, though clearly he connected much more with his father's side of the family, kind of like me. So I wonder about any connection to his mother's people. Did his child's mind unconsciously resent the grandparents who stole his mother from him? These are all questions I now ponder as I sit here in the land of my great-great-grandmother, Addie Sparrow French, in a new connected hub of a location a half hour's drive to the cemetery plot in Auburn where my grandfather is buried, another jaunt to the place where I found Addie's grave next to Milton's in his hometown of Turner, or for a visit back to Addie's birthplace to see Lorraine and her cows. I've found a place I feel I just might belong as I do this contemplation and research. In my special writing chair, in my new home office, with my own maple tree outside the window, now tending to an 1820 farmhouse 
that had already been standing for 36 years when my great-great-grandma Addie was born. Beautiful. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I love this piece. I love this piece. <laughs> Thank oh, you. Let's talk about it. So what really stood out to me was this sense of belonging of connection that yeah. you really heightened in the writing. And the other thing that stood out was the great amount of empathy that the narrator develops for her grandfather as well, a new understanding. Mm-hmm. So tell me what felt daring about this essay. Oh God, it it's really hard for me to talk about my family. Um, I think that that is probably like not an uncommon theme when it comes to writing. And, um, but it just, it, to confess that I didn't like my mother's father, you know, she is very connected to her family. I always felt like an outsider and I know that they don't think that about me. Um, but I feel that. And so it puts us in, puts us, I say me, it puts me in this sort of nether world of push and pull. Like there's good sides of things and bad sides of things. There's difficulties. I, I I'm trying, I, I'm probably, I feel like I'm not digging in too deep about what's scary about it. Um, But I think that the idea of feeling like I don't belong on this side of the family and saying that he just was not anyone I ever connected to, it just is tied into stuff that, um, I don't know, like one of your lines from your first essay that you read here um, comes back to me is like, you don't talk about the family. <laughs> um, my mom's a very positive person. I, I have suggested, I think in time to time about my religious upbringing and she is, I call her relentlessly joyful. Like she's just <laughs> always sees the positive sides of things. And I know it's, um, upsetting for her to know that I feel this way, which she does. Um, but she just kind of says, oh, everybody loves you and okay, maybe they do. But I feel like I have to, it's my struggle to be the outlier and to say, I just don't feel it. And if I don't feel it, I don't feel it. And you can't make me do it. I get, I get this Mm -hmm. little insolent child piece of me inside that like digs in and says, don't make me be part of this. Um, and which is why it was all the more strange that this autobiography was sort of plopped in front of me. And I found this whole amazing story that opened up this whole other world to me. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what you tapped into is the number one fear of any writer is it's the family secret, right? Mm-hmm. So it is, um, it, it's never really about the strangers you're afraid of reading your writing. It's about your family and what will they say and what will they think. And as you said, there is this child within you that's kind of standing their ground. Like, this is the way I feel. Don't mm-hmm. please don't make me feel 
otherwise. So to be able to claim that in your writing is the daring part, is Mm -hmm. the brave part, right? Which is what the entire podcast is on. (laughs) Absolutely. It's not only about saying how you feel, but unveiling the truth, which is that sometimes we don't feel we belong even in our own families. Yeah. Uh, And so talk to me about this idea of belonging, how you started threading it into your piece, where that all came from. How did you ultimately know like, oh, this is a story about Maine, but it's really a story about belonging? Yeah, I think that that's kind of a core theme for me throughout almost every right writing that I do or much writing that I do. I think I struggle with, I don't know, that goofy little saying about like, I, I wouldn't want to be part of any club that would have me as a member. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I, I don't know how much I put myself in this like unreachable circumstance or something, but I feel like I've been on the periphery. Sometimes I'm more comfortable on the periphery of things, but belonging is something that I do yearn for because I think I don't often see people like myself. Um, So I really have, I've struggled with not feeling understood or not feeling like who I am is recognized. And that's a bit of not belonging and sometimes it's a source of great pain and sometimes it's like the proudest thing I know about myself it's it's weird that it's those two different things so starkly um yeah I love that you just said that because um I feel that way so often so but I had never heard anyone articulate it that way that this not belonging or being on the periphery can can make one feel both lonely and saddened but also really proud. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I just I it's one of those slow thinking things that I think I haven't even really come to until almost until coming to Maine, like Maine is such an outskirts place. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of by coming to the periphery of the United (laughs) States, you know, we're out here like this funny, odd peninsula, COVID, the Canadian border sealed off, you know, it Maine is an outpost of a whole bunch of really independent thinkers. And um, I never thought of myself that way, but I guess I am. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's funny, as, as you know, and as a lot of my writing has been to try and really go towards myself to like, who am I to accept myself to accept the person that I am, be it outlier or the outlier who wants to be in the center of all outliers? I don't know. Mm, (laughs) Um, Yeah. But I feel like it's been such a great place for me. And if I'm from away forever, well, then that's just kind of reinforces the same thing. And <laughs> I don't know. Well, that's what I wanted to focus on. I mean, this piece is so location focused. This setting is a character here. 
And I love that you picked up on the symbolism that Maine is on the outskirts. It is an outpost. And so it just feels very fitting with the topic that you're talking about. And I wanted to touch on a couple of things that I noticed when listening to you, mm-hmm. which first and foremost, when you talk about Maine, you light up. Really? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so you certainly showed us why the family history makes you feel kind of rooted in Maine. Um, What else is it about Maine that would take a Boston gal and make (laughs) her fall so in love with Maine? I know it's, oh, I, I wish I knew. I mean, I go on a jog almost every day. And I look around at the trees and the meadows and the houses and the roads. And I just go, I love it here. I, I love it here. And it's something it's really hard to describe. I have to spend more time thinking about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've only lived here now since it's, we moved in in July. It's now um, mid-March. Um we haven't been here quite a year yet. And I think there's something about, you know, it's this morning, it was nine degrees out when <laughs> I came downstairs. We had a very lovely 50 degree day, like two days ago. So I mean, the weather, yeah, it's a little worse than Boston. But in a funny way, this year, we've had less snow. And I've always hated winter. And I've always, I've always been just pathologically afraid of bugs. I like running on sidewalks, not on the side of the road. There are so (laughs) many things that are like at odds with myself and my comfort zone that Maine is outside of, yet there's this bigger atmosphere of this is a magical place. And Mm. and it's been, you see that so much um, now that I've been living here, like watching the news every night, like they will have a feature about like, here's a main artist or here's um, like a main, it's not just arts. Like here's a main business man that discovered something that the rest of the countries, there's such a pride about Maine. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I don't love pride, but it's sort of the pride in the best sense of it, of being mm-hmm. a really special place that people just love. They're, they're passionate about it. And plenty of Massachusetts people. I mean, it's sort of like, that's why I was so excited when I got rid of my Massachusetts plates, put those main plates on my car. I was very excited. About well, you that. don't want to be recognized as a quote unquote mass hole, right? No, exactly. <laughs> no, just... Mass hole, the maniac. I was thinking about trying to write something with that title, but I feel like It's probably a little too much. I don't know. Well, you know, I can talk about this with you because my husband's from Massachusetts, born and raised. His parents live in Maine and we got married an hour outside of Augusta in a town, Belgrade. Uh, So so whenever we would cross the border into Maine and we would read the sign, the way life should be, there was an instant shoulder drop, a long, deep sigh. Absolutely. (laughs) I get it. And I look at each other many times when like something that used to take forever or be so difficult in the city, we look at each other, we go, the way life should be. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love it. I love it. Now, since your location has changed, I mean, you went through this major transition this July, as you said, leaving jobs, leaving city to go to the country, changing states, right? So a huge transition, which I have loved following in your weekly newsletters. (laughs) Uh, So how does that change your writing process or does it? Um, Well, the best way to answer that, I think, suffice it to say that now I have a writing process. <laughs> um, it's, it's just, it's so much better. And I think in that way that I think I was saying before about being away, like not in front of my computer, like the things that I do when I'm not thinking, like, so I'm on my jog or as I have come to be doing so many different yard and outdoor type tasks, that has become such valuable like mulling time for me to think about it it turns everything into a metaphor and so I feel like it is really wonderful to be able to have all this time of like being outdoors physical labor to contemplate and compare and just mull. I'm a big muller, I guess. I just think Mm -hmm. about these things. And so it gives me something to write about and I'll go, okay, I have to do this. And then I'll come in from doing what I have to do. And I don't usually like run to my computer or anything. I'm not even super good about like keeping notes or putting a memo on my phone. I feel like that's one of the things I could get better at. Once in a while, I'll put a memo on my phone and almost by the act of recording it, I never go back and listen to them. Although once in a blue moon, I do. So yeah, it's been great for my writing also just because I have the time to dedicate to myself and to dedicate to writing. It's funny because as I was saying before, my writing processes, I love coming down first thing in the morning, really early, making my coffee, opening my computer and just start typing and sort of COVID overlaying everything, you know, forcing us to be home. There's obviously what before we left, there was a lot of work from home stuff, but now not having a job to go to or to log into or anything. It's funny how I get so much done before we even have breakfast. And I just love my morning routine. So, you know, like I'll write for a while, then we have breakfast, then I'll clean up, then I go on my run or do whatever exercise I'm going to do for the day. Then I come back, then I, and I can't get a shower done usually before like 11 o'clock in the morning, but I feel like (laughs) oh my God, the days just fly by. And then doing this podcast, it works really well. I do my editing in the afternoon. So it's just been a great flow to my day. I will say I'm really looking forward to the chance, fingers crossed, you know, that this vaccine is gonna Mm -hmm. take and we'll have a chance to get out and meet people. You know, I meet people on the road and we talk from across the road and and I feel like I, I have met so many more neighbors here than I ever even knew <laughs> in Boston. It is weird how I feel so much more connected. And we happen to know a friend of a friend who lives across town. So when we moved in, they came over and brought us the town trash bags. Like it was just, <laughs> it's just been great. It's been great. And so, yeah, anyways, yeah. So I have a writing process now 
And um, I, I feel like I'm getting a lot of it done. I'm, I'm just getting it done and I'm thrilled about it. So, yeah. Yeah. And which leads me to, you talked about the podcast. So how has being in Maine and also hosting this podcast, how has it influenced you in being more daring in trusting your oh, gut, God. which is, you write about the gut all the time, right? <laughs> yes. Um, so what has it done for you? The podcast or Maine or both, I both, guess, right? Both. So it's funny because in a funny way, the podcast is almost completely incidental from Maine. I mean, it is, I mm. liked, actually, I have posted a couple times um, on a few local, um, like there's a next door web, like mm -hmm. social media thing. You know, I call my podcast to people I talk about in Maine, I call it a local grown <laughs> podcast. Um, <laughs> but it features people from all over the country and it features people going through all kinds of things, which of course everybody does no matter where you are. Um, so the podcast is made, made in Maine. Um, mm -hmm. And the podcast has been the thing that I have done to help me be brave. Um, so by all the stories from all the amazing, daring, brave, soulful, genuine, authentic, like all these great things, women, couple of guys is all inspiration for me. I feel like it is my biggest personal indulgence. It's a passion project. Um, like I said about this, I feel like, oh God, Michelle, you just, you're barely saying anything, but it, I'm dipping the toe, my toe in the water of trying to be more brave and to say the things I think, um, which I have never really been that vocal of a person. I've been quite quiet. And I don't know, it's funny because since joining the workshop that I did and meeting all the people through your leadership, your wonderful gathering of all these people. I feel like I'm sometimes the talkiest person in our group and I always feel bad. I'm like, oh, Michelle, shut up. I'm like, who is this person suddenly talking all the time? I, I've come out of my shell a little bit and I think it does have to do with feeling my gut. And we, but we've been talking about the gut. I mean, the other thing that has been pivotal in my own personal development and my writing and my feeling was surgery that I had in 2015 when it was discovered I had a large precancerous polyp in my rectum and had to have it removed. So that has been a life-changing experience for me on every level. So that is the core of what the memoir is that I'm writing about. And keep working on it. And, and like anything, it becomes a metaphor. I dig deeper and realize all these things I feel. And it's, it's true how connected our fears are to our gut. And I think it's been a strange biological uh, side effect that I must go through some different emotional contemplation of feeling my gut now that I have some pretty um, intense ways I must live my life. I 
try not to go too much into the poop stuff. Um, but <laughs> Nadine has read many of my chapters and you've read through all the, all the poop stories that go along with it and talk about daring to tell, you know, that's also who wants to hear about poop. So if you are well, interested in this memoir, you will hear about poop. But I, I mean, let me tell you, I have gotten to see through the great honor and pleasure of reading your work is watching a narrator who through going through something physically that dealt with their gut, then after really learned to be in tune and in touch with their gut physically, emotionally, metaphorically. And it really comes through on the page how we see this narrator make such a transition and really owning who she is and really getting in tune, not with what anybody else says or what it, what it should be, but who am I? How do I feel? What do I think? And I think that those are the questions we all ask. Mm-hmm. They're the questions we all ask, whether or not we've been through you know, the really difficult surgery that you've been through, I think every human being asks themselves, who am I? What do I really think? How do I really feel? And most importantly, am I brave enough to own that? Uh, So that has been the beauty on the page that I've watched unfold. And it's at the crux of everything you do. This podcast is around can I be brave enough to share my story? You ask it of yourself, you ask it of your guests. And so bravery, courage, guts are at the core of everything you do now. So man, what a transition it's been, right? Yes. And, and so now that your season is coming to a close, your first season. I know. Uh, what what has listening to some of those guests? What has that done for you? Oh, and or God. even you know how it yeah. influenced the piece you chose for today, or how you wrote the piece you well, did. Well, it's funny. I will say it didn't influence the piece that I chose or what I wrote. Like. I knew this was the essay I wanted to read because I think because of where it is and where I am, like that Mm -hmm. part is really ties me to Maine and I have clearly like loved being here and it's, it means so much to me. I actually, another part about this that I didn't mention, those bicyclists were definitely the key that unlocked the whole story. In addition to all the people saying, so why did you move to Maine? And I'm like, well, <laughs> and I'd start going into, well, I found this autobiography, my great, great grandmother. <laughs> and well, yeah, I didn't think that I belonged in Maine, but maybe I do. And it's funny because I feel like in Massachusetts, people would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Thanks so much. <laughs> but in Maine, they'd be like, oh, that's so interesting. And I'd say, they say, where? And I'd say Hartford. They wouldn't know where Hartford, Maine was which is another thing I love about Maine like people who live here forever like there's towns you've never heard of them it's so huge I mean it is just Mm -hmm. such a huge state so all of that was very fun and shortly after moving here Phil's kind of always like on the lookout of stuff opportunities for me and he saw that one of the nearby libraries was having a writing contest and there was a category for local main stories for nonfiction. Mm -hmm. So I was Mm -hmm. like, that's perfect. I'll submit my essay about moving to Maine. It's all about Maine. And Nadine, I think I told you this. 
I was like, I am going to win this contest. I was <laughs> for someone who sometimes like has no, again, this is my own conundrum, like no self-confidence and very insecure and all this stuff. But I'm like, no, I, I am going to win this contest. And I could hardly believe I did not win. So, mm. <laughs> so now you, my dear listener, get to hear my story that did not win the contest, but here it is. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that was kind of another, another part of it. I forget what you asked to begin. No, no, that's okay. But I mean, what, what really hits me is this theme about the telling what we tell and what we don't tell, because Mm. it felt so layered to me that Addie, here she is writing in her diary, a secret place that nobody else is going to see, or so she thought. Right. And she's writing about this horrible situation of wishing her daughter would have known the elements that were going on inside of her. I mean, yeah, talk yeah. about the parallels here. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I literally got a little chill when you said that, because that has also struck me many times. Uh, Grace was 46 when she died. I was 46 when I found out that I had this precancerous mm. polyp. Um, so the multi-generational overlay has been, yeah, a little eerie and strange and, um, scary. And, uh, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's a hard thing to fathom. What if I didn't make it like, what if I wasn't here anymore? Mm. Um, it's just almost too big to ask it's I I don't know it's like I imagine the stories of the people you hear who you know stayed home the morning of 9-11 or you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know survivors um Mm -hmm. survivors guilt I don't know if I would call in my situation guilt but it's hard to contemplate well I'm still here Mm -hmm. um and you know that actually is something that I feel like should make me braver like I am still here I can tell my story um like I said it should make me braver (laughs) (laughs) but that's I think what you are showcasing is that because of knowing and telling the truth you are here because seeking out the truth about your health yeah explained and and showcased some of what was going wrong, then you were able to make changes Yeah, because you are now sharing your story. It seems you, I don't know, from the outside, it just seems that as you're telling your story, it is so cleansing. Like it's so, um, I see you come alive because Mm. you can share your story because you Mm. choose to share your story because you have the guts to share your story. So you're living proof of the, of what happens when we do seek out the truth. We do share the truth. We do own the truth, which that's what I found so interesting. Oh my God. Thank you. I can't say anything other than thank you for that. That's, um, that's really meaningful to me. It's, um, I feel like the bravery is something that I have to refine every day. I mean, but isn't that what we all do? Just Mm -hmm. keep 
trying to find a way to continue on with the things that we continue on with. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I don't for a second um, take for granted the stuff that I just feel so fortunate about. So I, I do want to be able to share to, um, to spotlight others to, um, I think maybe the other question that I didn't get my way around to was the other people in the podcast. It, it's made me feel so connected, mm. um, which is another thing. It's, it's kind of the belonging. Like I, I've been, I've come to a place where I feel I belong. And I've also found people each one-on-one -on -one point to whom I feel like I relate to and want to connect with. And it's given me so much joy and energy to feel connected. And that connection is, you know, the connection that we have right now over a computer screen, which frankly might not have happened had it not been for COVID. So there's sometimes very odd silver linings to terrible tragedies. I'm not trying to make light of mm -hmm. that in, in any way, shape or form, but, but yeah, the connection that it's provided me with every single person I've talked to, I could not be more grateful for. And I just, I've been so, so proud and grateful and pleased for every single one of you who I've spoken with. So. Yeah. And the ripple effect continues on because I sure hope uh, so. Yeah, it does. It does because I'll be jogging and I'll think about something that's going on in my own life. And I'll think about, well, oh, well, that piece that Robin shared and here's what she learned in it. And that actually relates to what I'm going through right yeah. now. I should take a tip from her and blah, blah, blah. Yep. And so each person, Betsy, et cetera, each person that's been showcased here, it's almost like through living their life has taught a lesson or has shared being a human. And then when I'm going about my life, I can pull and like reach into, oh yeah, I remember they mentioned this and that applies to my life now. So it's mm -hmm. almost like, it's almost like they're teaching vicariously through telling their stories yeah. and you never know when someone will need that seed. It might be five months from now, five right. years from now, but they'll yep. remember one of the stories by your guests and or by you mm -hmm. and it'll be relevant to them. Yeah. You know, that yeah. is the beauty of this kind of story sharing that you're right. doing. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, it's the same connection like Addie gave me through time, mm -hmm. except it happens to be a voice this time. And it's um, who knows what good it will bring to the future. I, I hope it does. I hope it does. And um, I am cooking up a potential, you know, maybe we'll have some kind of, um, epilogue episode I'm thinking with mm -hmm. you know Nadine's ladies or something like that because you were <laughs> the connecting factor for all of us the connection of all connections <laughs> um so I will say I guess stay tuned for that and do not be afraid I will be working on a season two so I've got some thoughts about that um so stay tuned as we say in the back in the radio business uh, I'll be waiting with bated breath. <laughs> you'll, be, you'll know what's going on. Well, thank you, Michelle, for coming on your podcast today. <laughs> thank it you, Nadine. Awesome. It was, I loved having you as my guest host and it was so fun to be your guest. And thank you for everything 
you've mm-hmm. done for me on every side of the microphone. So yeah, you're very welcome. That was just so much fun. Oh my God, I had such a great time talking with Nadine. If I speak to you from my heart, from my gut, my own instinct as I am now trying so diligently to be aware of, my own line that I spoke here with Nadine is one that revisits me. I have to refind my bravery every single day. Some days I wake up and I write 1,500 words towards my memoir. I go on a run. I hear a new story that sparks a new idea for me, makes me want to go reach out to a writer I just discovered. Sometimes I'll find the perfect pairing in a piece of music to score words that will bring a story to life. I talk with my very best friend in the world. I hold my husband tightly. Those are good days. And every day they happen, I am just so grateful for. But there is the other side of the coin. I write things and I say, I can't say that. I imagine the person who would be the most critical of whatever it is that I have to say, and I allow them to rip me to shreds about it. Or worse, I think, why why do I even think anyone cares what I have to say? On those days, I try to recognize that inner critic, acknowledge her perspective, her voice of caution that is there trying to protect me. But then I do try to reach down a little deeper to the voice that is in my core that will not be silenced. And I try to just listen. As I uh, come to the end of this season one, I have a few other thoughts I wanted to share with you today. One is from a poem. It goes, Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? It's the end of a poem called The Summer Day by Mary Oliver. And boy, does that speak to me. Um, It just cuts through the angst and fear to what is most important. That Mary Oliver poem surfaced in my life at the memorial service for a former colleague of mine. She's the one I mentioned at the end of the William Kenauer conversation, and she was basically a colleague, um, but the kind of colleague who I always thought of as a friend had we ever been able to spend more time together. She died on March 4th from metastatic breast cancer and her memorial service was just so moving. Her death has impacted me. And in addition to that Mary Oliver poem, there was also a Hebrew phrase that got mentioned in her memorial service. Tikkun Olam, which is interpreted as repairing the world 
one at a time. This so jumped out at me because it's kind of how I've always approached myself and my life, my ideations of what I imagined. If my work, my ideas, my art, if I dare call it that, can reach just one person, well, that would feel pretty significant. Because my goal is to connect, to find understanding and commonality alongside all the many places that we humans differ. So it goes back to that thing I found in my journal way back when, when I was imagining this very podcast, stories of complexity and kindness, which is what I hope you have discovered here. For these two gifts, that Mary Oliver poem and Tikkun Olam, I want to thank and remember Ren Ross. So this is my season one, 10 writers plus mine. If you have caught just one or two of them, I hope you will check out some of the others. Each one has a precious gift to offer. I will have one more episode, a season finale bonus episode of a sort that will feature three short essays on the topic of mothering ourselves in anticipation of a webinar workshop event that I will be offering along with three writers that you heard from this season, Peg Conway, Robin Fisher, and Betsy Armstrong. The phrase mother yourself just kind of came to me one day, and I'm I'm very active in the motherless daughters community, particularly among women who lost their moms young. And so Mother's Day is a big, big event that people try to support each other through. To me, it's even more than just women who lost their mother. It's almost like a like a symbol that we need to reinvent that mothering, the act of mothering surpasses all the cultural expectations, all the hallmark expectations, and that we can reframe it in any way we want to. I will indeed be going back into production mode for a few months as I begin cooking up a season two. And as I do that, I do plan to release a bonus episode from time to time. And I would love to hear your thoughts and reactions to any of the episodes you've heard this season. Here's my question for you. In the prior episode with Bill Kenauer, I had what I called a hit-pause moment. You know, when you have to just stop and think about something you've just heard. I feel like Brene Brown does that frequently, and I just love that she does it because I had done it too. So have you had any hit-pause moments in the series? If you have, send them to me. What are your questions or comments for me or for any of the writers you've heard? You can email me, michelle at michellerado.com. That's michelle with two L's, R-E-D-O dot com. A few extra thanks as I wrap up this season. I especially want to thank Nadine Kenny Johnstone for pretty much everything having to do with the execution of this podcast. Uh, It would not exist were it not for her class. Nadine, I so appreciate your calm, supportive wisdom and energy and always the theme of authenticity that runs through absolutely everything that you do. Of course, I would like to again thank every single writer who has shared their work, their life throughout this season. 
And I also want to give a huge, genuine, most monumental shout out and thank you to my wonderful dear husband Phil Rado who wrote and performed and recorded all of the theme music you have heard throughout the season. He has an ever-growing bank of songs. They're on Spotify or on Bandcamp so just search for his name Phil Rado. As always thank you for daring to listen. <laughs>